Hello, 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 and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode three of Mike on the Mic, with me, Mike. <laughs> We're up to an amazing 68 subscribers now. How cool is that? It's mind-blowing. So uh, welcome back to all 68 of you. Or, or, or if you're new, hello, my name's Mike. I host the show, uh, and this podcast is all about all the, the cool things that I find on the internet. Oh, not like that. <laughs> no, no, nothing dirty. It's mostly just some of the interesting and uh, amazing things that I read about online. At last week's episode, I spoke all about Shanghai's maglev train and other high-speed or bullet trains. It was really interesting. But this week's episode is all about Eric Weyenmayer. On the 25th of May, 2001, at approximately 10am, Eric summited Everest. Amazing, right? Anybody who can get to the top of Mount Everest is a superhuman, in my opinion. They instantly join a very small, select club of people. I mean, what a feat of bravery and skill and determination. I can't imagine doing anything like that. That's impressive on its own, isn't it? But even more amazing is that Eric is blind in both eyes. And he has been since the age of 13. I mean, I struggle when it's dark in the loft. I hit my head the other day on the beam. Everest. Wow. Amazing. So anyway, this episode is all about Eric and his story. Because I think it's amazing and so inspirational and something that I just have to share with you all. I, I, I may even try and do the voice for him. Hold on. <coughs> oh, forgive the accent if it's not that good. The first time the team saw it, there were giggles and cheers. Nerves, excitement, tension. I pointed toward the summit to hear laughter from my climbing partner and lifelong buddy, Jeff Evans. Higher, he said. And I pointed a little higher. He giggled. Still higher, he said. I pointed higher, he giggled again. Nope, even higher. I pointed so high, my arm was basically vertical. There you go, buddy, Jeff said. Right on the money. Somewhere in the pit of my stomach, fear began to spill like liquid filling a void. Ever since losing my eyesight, fear has tried to consume me. But a fragile strand of hope keeps fear in its box. So, just to give you some context, as you'll know, Everest is the highest point on planet Earth, sitting at around 29,000 feet. That's over five miles high. That's amazing. Uh, to put that in other terms, that's around... 627 double-decker buses, or, or 4,328 Peter Crouches. <laughs> From my research, it seems that getting to the top it isn't just a case of packing a bag and going on a hike, but a long affair that takes weeks of preparation and acclimatisation. <laughs> the air is so thin up Everest that it causes severe altitude sickness, and other side effects like amnesia, delirium, dizziness, and severe fatigue. Your average Joe like me who plods around a warehouse all day wouldn't stand a chance. And even for experienced mountaineers, it's notoriously difficult and dangerous, 
There are five camps in total to break up the ascent. First, there's base camp, which you've probably heard of, and then they go up numerically up to camp number four. Uh, four is the highest one, uh, the final camp. It's about 2,000 feet below the summit. Summit, it just means the, the highest point of the mountain. My dad got all emotional when he left base camp. I suppose the thought that goes through your head is, this could be the last time. I don't think it has anything to do with my sight. Just the father's love. He knows I love this though. He knows that I'm good at this. Since mom died, he's had to do both, and I suppose that means his heart is twice as big. He hugged me. Very tight. We'll be following you very closely, he said, with a hand on my shoulder. Make sure we get a summit call, he ordered. He knew that was a given. As was always the pattern, I summited and I called. With eyes, I might have seen tears trickling down his cheek, but I didn't need them to know that. I felt it. He told me to be safe, okay? A question, a plea, a last request from father to son. He said it one more time, sterner, a command, be safe. And off he descended. Leaving base camp, I would miss him. But I have a good network of friends up here, and we do have the satellite phone. Plus, it would only be two months. I've been away for much longer- what's going on? Oh, tea please! <laughs> Sorry everyone. Base camp would be Eric and the team's home for nearly two months. To be fully equipped for their ascent to the summit, they would need to shuttle oxygen tanks, food, and other resources from base camp up to the higher camps. In a series of numerous trips, they would also spend some time at camp 1 and 2 to acclimatise to the low levels of oxygen. Perhaps naively, I'd sort of assumed they'd just get to base camp and then climb straight to the top. It just shows that even after climbing Kilimanjaro, Mont Blanc, and, and, and Denali... Even after a year of training, there was still gruelling and difficult work to be done. To get to Camp 1, the climbers would have to conquer what is one of the toughest parts of the climb. The Kumbu Icefall. Ooh. <laughs> Before making this podcast, I-, I watched loads of videos online of people crossing Kumbu. And well, it's hard to do justice with nouns and adjectives. Remember those games that you used to play in big shops when you were a kid? Mostly being Q. You know, where you'd jump from one red floor tile to another one, and you'd try and make it all the way around the shop without touching any of the black or white floor tiles? If you did, you'd be annoyed. And you'd be even more annoyed when your older brother would punch you in the arm and tell you that you've just been swallowed up by lava, you idiot. <laughs> Imagine that those red tiles were huge boulders of ice, all at jaunty angles, varying from the size of of a garden shed all the way up to a skyscraper. And then the black and white tiles, the, the ones that you're trying to avoid touching, are huge chasms, some so deep and dark that they look like black holes or something. To get over the black holes, you'd, you'd have to cross garden ladders screwed into the ice, 
sometimes up to three at a time that are sketchily tied together with rope, and they're laid flat across the hole. Oh, and then suddenly, you're walking around B&Q carrying a huge rucksack that weighs like loads of kilograms, and the temperature is minus 20 degrees, and there are these winds that go up to 90 miles an hour. Oh, I'm just in complete awe. It puts my own pathetic existence well into perspective, making my own B&Q adventures seem microscopic. I remember being about 14 and having a parent see me. My mum didn't tell me off afterwards, like some of the other kids, but equally she didn't give me £10 like some of the kids got. There was nothing. It was like it hadn't happened. Later that night, I couldn't sleep, so I snuck downstairs to, you know, get some juice or maybe something to eat. Mum and Dad were watching the telly. I heard my mum say, Just nothing, Will. She was so blank, you know. I think it took her a good few minutes to remember who he is. She didn't have anything to say about him. It was like he didn't exist, or, or she'd never met him let alone taught him for seven months. Frank is top of his class. He was... He has a whole babble of friends, loads of hobbies, bright as a button. Mike just does whatever we do. You know, follows me round the kitchen watching me cook. Follows you round the garden picking up the dog's poo. He'd watch the washing machine go round and round if we'd let him. His teacher said, he's pleasant. Pleasant, Will. She actually used the word pleasant. Tell me when you've heard a more generic description of a person. He's not bad. He's not good. He's average. Sorry, folks. <laughs> Got a bit distracted there. Uh, that's a story for another time, I think. Well, Kumbu lived up to expectation. What a nightmare. Before we set off today, I think everyone in the camp was tetchy, and we needed to break. Who in their right mind would take three-story deep crevasses over Kevin's tea at base camp? But that's what we're here for. We left base camp early. Backpacks heavy, full of supplies and oxygen. It was clear but cold and windy and icy. I prepared enough, I kept reminding myself. I've already climbed the seven peaks and I've practiced these ladder crossings countless times with Pascal in the yard. But if I fell in the yard, I'd land a foot below on the dirt. Up, up here, there was no such room for mistakes. There'd be some nervous giggles if I fell in the yard. I and everyone else know what that could mean on the mountain. Despite setting off full of spirit and excitement, it was short-lived. Straight away, I realized that this was a different beast of a mountain. I had always found sheer pleasure and enjoyment in mountains like McKinley, where I kicked a rhythm. I'd step higher in the snow, swing my axe into the ice, and breathe. Step, swing, breathe. Step, swing, breathe. Step, swing, and so on. Here, I could not establish anything like a rhythm. 
too much inconsistency. Every crevasse a different size, every ladder crossing at a slightly different angle. Every corner of Kumbu with a different exposure to the wind. One fault. Just one lapse of judgment I twist my ankle, pop my knee, or... Or much, much worse. We were twelve hours in and I was becoming incredibly frustrated and more and more tired. I found myself in a cycle of frustration, between wanting to go quicker and not wanting to take too many risks. Progress was slower than we'd hoped. If someone ever tells you that mountaineering is fun, then they fudge their words. Exhilarating, sure. Exhausting, enthralling, I could agree with. Very rarely is it fun. Today especially, I repeatedly found myself making offerings to the gods, whoever or whatever they may be. I'd offer to never lie again, to stop cursing, to, oh, I don't know, make more effort with family, to give more money to charity or to go to church every week. It's a three-section ladder over a big crevasse. It leans to the left. Luis told me. I put my hand down to meet snow at first. Some scanning. I could feel the ladder. It was icy and cold to the touch. Almost certainly very slippery. Below it, well, who knows? My mind wandered into blackness. Into the void. No, I told myself. You can't think like that, Eric. The truth is that no one knows what is at the bottom of those things. Just darkness. Boundless, limitless space. Lots of climbers crawl along those ladders to get more purchase. But I could sense everyone's eyes on me. Besides, I didn't need to crawl. I'd never crawled in the yard. These ladders are exactly the same. I pick up the two guide ropes and I start to take steps. Just like the yard, Eric. Just like the yard. The whole thing shakes side to side in the wind. My tired legs are trembling. The whole ladder is trembling with them. I inch forward. Step by step, taking my time. I nail the first three rungs. I take my next step, but my crampon misses the rung in front of me, and the sharp steel slides off the ladder. I catch myself. I shift my balance quick, leaning onto my back foot. I lift up my foot and land it on the ladder. Oh, who knew you could sweat so much at 20 degrees below zero? Somebody jokes, hey, show off, we get it, you can do it one-footed. Somebody else shouts, Six rungs left, Eric. Some people assume that if you can't see how far you have to fall, then you're not afraid. But I sometimes think that falling into the unknown is scarier than falling into something you can see. I gather my breath and set off again. In life, I've lived through patterns, rhythms, parallels,
consistencies that mean I don't need to see. I just had to find the pattern. I'd found it out on the back, and this was no different, I told myself. Just like the yard, Eric. Just like the yard. Six, step, five, step, four, step, three, step, two, step, one. I take a big step forward and am met with the welcoming sound of crunching ice. From somewhere in the distance, I hear Ellie. Me and Emma are so proud. I picture my one-year-old daughter and my beautiful wife. I know I'm just hearing the melody of the mountain, the winds singing and screeching, whistling away against the ice. But for a moment, I can hear them. I struggle on through the day, even as fit as I consider myself and as experienced as I am. This is one hell of a mountain. Nearly 13 hours pass when we finally see the finish line. Camp number one. Lewis shouts that we are home and dry, boys. I can see the tents. And an assurance and warmth fills me. As though I've just taken a sip of that hot tea that will be brewing in less than 10 minutes. I reach a small crevasse. If they're small enough to step or jump over, then I use my walking pole to measure them, jabbing the other side and using it like a measuring stick, oh, or like my white cane. I make a leap, but the crevasse veers to the right. One foot lands, but the other misses and sinks down into the darkness. I lurch my weight forward, my arms writhing around in a crazed, frantic fashion. Lewis stretches out and grabs my coat, but he misses. Oh, hello, Isaac. I'm sorry, everyone. That's just Isaac jumping up to say hello. You'll know Isaac if you've listened in before. If not, he's me dog. He's a little Yorkie. Hello, buddy. Do you want to be on the podcast? Go on then, say hello. <laughs> no, oh, get off, Isaac. Stop it. Season. Isaac, down. Get off it. No! What? Can you get the dog? He's being a pain. What? As well as doing tea, the washing up and everything else. Whilst you sit and play with your mic. Come on, Isaac. Terry Wogan's working. That mere moment felt like a lifetime. As my leg fell down through that small hole, momentarily I thought my whole body might follow it. In the confusion, Lewis reached out to grab me. A pole in his hand, whoosh! He missed me, but the pole didn't. Straight to the nose, it was busted. I could feel the blood pouring down my face and taste the iron in my mouth. Over half a day after setting off, we made it to Camp One. Bloodied, bruised and tired. I was peeved that it had taken so long. It shouldn't have. Not even a fraction of that time. I know that I will be way quicker next time. I have seen the Kumbu Icefall now. That night. Exhausted. For the first time, I started to doubt myself. 
My brain, mangled by delirium, opened up like one of those deep, dark crevasses. The impending thought of having to cross that icefall another ten or fifteen times seemed impossible. What right did I, a blind guy, have to commit to that? I sat in my tent, shoveling mac and cheese into my mouth like I was possessed. Thirteen hours of climbing had made me ravenous. I wanted to eat and then sleep. Drift into dreamland where I could see Everest and climb it. As I drifted off, I found some inner calm. Nestled into the warmth of my sleeping bag, I hear Emmer babble and giggle over the crescent of the hill in dreamland. Ellie is saying, We're okay down here, Eric. Go and be brilliant. Tell Daddy you love him. More babbles from Emma. I miss you both, I respond, and fall into a warm, fuzzy sleep. The first time that Eric crossed Kumbu, it took him 13 hours. But on his final ascent, he did it in just over five. I think that's amazing, and a true testimony to his character. What an amazing feat. Mike, Meg's asking if you're going to go back to jiu-jitsu tomorrow. Oh, nah, I, I don't think so. Why? I thought you had a great time. I, I did, I, I really did. Meg was great and, and Rob is awesome. I, I really love those two. It's just not for me. I'm too fat at the moment. No, you're not. You know I don't like it when you call yourself that. Meg was really impressed. You could be amazing at it. Nah, I'll be too busy with this podcast this week anyway. Okay, I'll let them know. Unlike Eric, I'm not really that active. I don't have any hobbies. I think Suze gets frustrated with me. She's great at hiding it, but... I know she wants me to... To have a passion. An interest. Something to invest my energy in. Truth be told, I've had so many. I'm, I'm just... I'm just not really cut out for much, I don't think. There was a karate with my brother, Frank, when I was... Well, I think I was eight. Um, that lasted about half a year. I was no good at that. A bird watching when I was ten. Grandpa Pumps used to take me out to the moors. Couldn't spot a duck in a pond, that one. <laughs> That's what Pumps used to say. Baking at the Women's Institute with my auntie. I did that for about three weeks when I was 12. And then I got fed up of being called cute and having my, my cheeks squeezed. Oh, the cake was really good though. <laughs> there were all sorts in my teenage years. Archery, sailing, script writing, poetry. I was even in a metal band with my neighbour for a month. More recently, I've, I've done rock climbing. I managed a few months at that actually. Uh, a Rubik's Cube Club, yes, they do exist. <laughs> Sue's got me six classes at canine dog training. I was going to take Isaac, you know, teach him some tricks, do those little gate jumps that they do. I was actually really looking forward to that until Isaac tried to, um, to impose himself in a, in a chihuahua. It wasn't a big deal. They're dogs, aren't they? They're always either... Wing up walls, 
eating or, or trying to hump stuff. <laughs> the guy called me loads of names, shouting to everyone that it was his mum's chihuahua and, and it was precious. He later apologised in the car park and said he'd had a really rough day. Something about an electrician? I think people think that because I don't have like a, a hobby or a passion that I'm not happy. But I am. I think. Just five hours over Kumbu and I couldn't be happier. I knew that I'd proved myself. Shaving nearly eight hours off through practice and focus. We felt so good and so energized that we pushed straight on through to Camp 2. To get to Camp 2, we'd have to march through the Western Coon, also known as the Silent Valley. So named because the shape of the valley means it is void of all acoustics and deathly silent. Pin, drop, quiet. Now, I endearingly call it that because the valley could have silenced us. We set straight off through Camp 1. Relative to the icefall, the western coombe is flat, but the oxygen gets thinner. So your legs can cool off whilst your lungs burn up. Good trade. Done enough training and acclimatization, though, so I need not complain. Yet. The air is rich. Oxygen-filled nectar compared to the treacle 23k and upwards. After an hour of climbing, I am beginning to get hot. Real hot. The bowl-like snow slopes surrounding the western coombe are shimmering and bright, reflecting the sun inwards like a mirror. The coombe can reach temperatures of up to 30 degrees Celsius, but then instantly drop in the shade to below zero. You feel like a model on a catwalk, changing your clothes every 30 seconds. The footing is flat, and we make good time. I know the Lotsey face approaches after Camp 2. I'm excited and nervous to be properly climbing, not just crossing ladders and hiking. Water break, Peavy shouts from afar. In a scorching heat, and after seven hours of solid trekking, my thoughts are only on cooling down. I take my jacket off and slump it over my shoulder. I reach down and first find a rock. I scan to the left and feel some snow. I rub it in my sweaty brow. It instantly melts and trickles down my face. I pick up another chunk and put it just below the back of my helmet, on top of my spine. It runs down under my thermals, mixing with the sweat down there. I unbuckle my helmet and set it down in between my feet. Just for a moment. I know it's a risky move, but only for a moment. Just to cool off. The damp sponginess of my hair soaks up the final bit of snow in my hand. I take a sip of water and I am already looking forward to that. Mac and cheese, or beans, or noodles, or rice, or... Whatever it is that we'll eat at Camp 3. My memory tricks me and for a moment I smell a plate of Ellie's pasta. As if it's right in front of me. I miss many things whilst being away. 
The food is always right near the top of that list. Mountain food can be tricky. Lots of rice, beans, dal, sachets, and other packed foods. I can smell the fresh basil and nuts and the topping of parmesan in the distance. I imagine whirling my fork in a circle, gathering a heap of Ellie's pasta. I feel the oily steam hit my face. Rock! Shem, our Sherpa shouts. Rocks! Rocks! My stomach drops. I grab down between my legs, but in that panicked moment, with a wet hand, I knock my helmet away. I hear pings, crashes, bangs all around me. Something lands, close. How close, I couldn't say, but I could feel the snow spit up from the impact of the rocks landing. I'm on all fours now, trying to keep my head tucked, whilst I scan for my helmet. Come on, come on, come on! I feel the toggle. I hook it with my third finger and wrench it towards me. Bang! Something lands. This time it hits a cluster of rocks that are so close. Bouncing away. I scramble a helmet in my hands, flipping it over at least five times, if not more, before I figure out which way is up. I slam it over my head way too hard, but it hurts far less than a rock would. I quickly fumble with the straps and somehow clasp it shut. Jeff or, or someone grabs my arm. Come on, buddy. Gotta move. We need to tuck into the right. He grabs me and pulls me to the ground to the right. Almost like a football tackle, I Jeez, hear another... Oh, damn. S sorry, folks. What's on the mic this week? I'm talking about Eric Weiermeyer. Do you remember that book you bought me last Christmas? Oh, the guy that climbed Everest? Yeah, him. That sounds great. Your number one fan is already looking forward to it. How hungry are you? Oh, very. That smells good. What are we having? Just some pesto pasta with chicken and salad. You know, it's a shame you don't want to go back to jiu-jitsu. Meg said you were impressive for a beginner. It's just not for me. I know, but if you just stuck at it, you might fall in love with it. Nah, it's not for me. I I'll come down in about 20 minutes. I just want to finish this off. Pesto's better hot. Your pesto is good at any temperature. Arriving at Camp 2, I berated myself for my moment down in the Western Coombe. How amateur, man. The first thing you learn in climbing is how to stay safe. Clipping in. Having the right gear. Wearing your goddamn helmet under any overhanging rock or ice face. I felt so stupid. As we now got into even higher stages of Everest, I knew that my mind would wander even more. Like a whisper in the wind. I couldn't let my attention or my focus slip for even a moment. The consequences were too severe. To add insult to injury, we sat in our dining tent in Camp 2, being told there had already been two sizable rescues on the upper mountain, both on or around the Lotzi face. External conversation was going on about the optimal time to head up, whether we broke now or waited a day internal conversation was going on about wearing my helmet and what could have been. It was settled that we'd break, waiting for morning to get some rest, but not the full day. 
I awoke still slightly bitter about the events of the day before. Kev had radioed a poem up to get us psyched about the upcoming challenges. Sure foot yourselves, pack of wolves. Be not the man that can't. Many failures learn from, hours of work built upon. No O, fire in your lungs, ice compared to your hearts. Crampons crunch down, your stance ready for war. The break in the cloud, heat beating down. Look into that deep crevasse within yourself. At the bottom awaits your soul. Uncontrollable spirit, release. No eyes, only ice. Be brave. One step. Fly high for friends. To the sky with friends. Don't die, my friends. Don't die. Quite the poet, Kev. Thanks, dude. PV jokes. I take solemn peace in his words, though. That's the one thing I wouldn't let happen. Whether I summited or didn't, I wouldn't let things go that south. Just don't die. I reaffirm to myself. Just don't die. To get to Camp 3, South Call, and the Summit, We'd be met by the gatekeeper to all of these, the Lotzi face. From the guides I'd read, from the stories I'd heard, from what I already knew, the Lotzi face would be real steep. We left Camp 2 and crossed the final bit of the Western Coombe, before looking up to meet the eyes of the Lotzi face peering down at us. The face is around a 50 degree angle and is made up of mostly compact, hard ice. I strap in and dig my crampons into the first step of the Lotzi face. Despite the oxygen fleeing around me and the steepness of the Lotzi face, there is something rhythmical about climbing this part. I would crunch my crampon into the next step, slide my Jumar up the rope with my right hand, pull down on it as I grip the rope, then repeat. Step Slide, pull, breathe. The line stayed straight, mostly all the way. Every now and then there'd be a shout of rock. It took three knocks on my helmet to fully reassure myself that it was on. I'd quickly cover my face with my left forearm and hope for the best. I was only hit once in the leg. Later it would bruise, but nothing more. Six hours after leaving Camp 2, we crawl into Camp 3, breathing heavily and ready for a sit-down. The wind is howling, and I can hear jingles of tent poles being disobedient. The canvas of the tents also being unruly, waving and billowing as their masters try to erect them. The steepness of Camp 3 means we have to stay roped up anywhere outside of the tents the tents being chiseled into the side of the steep slope. I can hear some of the guys hacking away at some oxygen tanks outside the tent, 
which have frozen solid into the ground. We now need them going into the higher altitudes where the oxygen is thin, and even after all the acclimatization that we've done. I chow down on a few candy bars, instantly feeling my body want to droop after the carb intake. I prop my bag up behind my head and cover myself in my sleeping bag. I can't find the energy to even get inside it. I rest my head, just for a moment. Wake up, man, I hear someone say. It, it can't be, but it sounds like... Darth Vader? Come on, buddy. We got a mountain to climb. I, I, I realize it's funny man Jeff, shouting at me through his oxygen mask. Your oats anchor at the bottom of your tent, Eric. Get it strapped in, I hear PV say. I quickly get my things together, wiring my mask to my oxygen tank, which will sit on my back. I straight away notice the weight it adds, but I don't mind if it's going to make life easier. Eric would then climb the yellow band and then the Geneva Spur. Look, whilst these are steep and slow, the real challenge here is the ever-rising altitude. Hypoxia, which is oxygen deficiency, would have subtle but adverse effects on Eric and the group. Pulse rates would soar, the, the blood like thickens and clots, and, 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 and there is a, a, a constant shortness of breath. Worsening conditions can even cause fluid on the lungs, which means that you drown. Then there is snow blindness and a, a, a complete lack of physical coordination, which increases the risk of slips and trips, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, is not helpful on an icy mountain after, what is it now, Two months of climbing. I feel like a jack-in-the-box as I pop my head above the Geneva Spur. There's some excitement in me now, knowing that I've broken my own record, never been this high. I rip my mask off, lurch over to the right and heave my guts up all over some fresh white snow. Perhaps I'm lucky that I can't see it, but I can smell it. The acidity and the sickliness of the sugar drifts up, and I lurch again, heaving even more up. Jeff shouts, Hey, nice to know he pukes. Maybe super blind is human after all. In the background, I have one of the best views in the world. In the foreground, I have Eric Weyenmayer puking candy bars into the snow. We make it to Camp 4 at around 2 p.m. I'm feeling ever more nervous about the final summit. Not nervous whether I'll be successful, but just the, the sheer gravity of the challenge in front of me. There's descending climbers popping their heads in throughout the next few hours. One tells us it's the longest, most brutal day of his life. I'm cheered up though by an email from Ellie. Oh, hang on, I, I, I've got an idea. Suze? 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 What's up? Could you read this email for the podcast? What do I do? 
you just have to read it into this microphone here. Here you go. Sit down. Put the headphones on. Oh, can you do it in an American accent for me? Oh, really? I can't do an American accent. Oh, please. I'll read it, but I'm not doing an American accent. Hey, my stud of a mountain man. I'm thinking of you, knowing you're so many thousand feet up at Camp 4. You've done so incredibly well getting that far. All these years on, you're still amazing me every day. I wanted to do something to help you. I felt slightly helpless at home for the past few days. I took Emma to church and we sat and prayed for Daddy. I say we, I prayed, Emma played. She crawled around for a while. I couldn't quite focus on what I wanted to say, so I decided to walk around with her. She crawled over to the pulpit and was staring upwards at the painted ceiling. Clear blue skies with bright gold stars dotted around. Not a cloud in sight. I took it as a sign. You will summit. I know you will. We're both thinking of you and there's not a doubt in our minds. Go be brilliant. We love you, you studly man. I'm still thinking of that email nearly 12 hours later. After seven hours resting, we are leaving our final camp. I was in and out of sleep for those hours. It's difficult to relax when you're gasping for breath. I gave my crampons a double check, making sure they're as tight as they possibly can be. I use my tongue to check the airflow of my regulator and triple check my helmet is on and secure. We set off from the south call towards the balcony. I find this part of the climb miserable. Whether it's because of exhaustion or having now entered the death zone, everything is tough. Each step feels like I'm lifting lead boots. And each time we pause, I try and catch my breath. But I'm still trying ten breaths later. I'm constantly aware also of the return trip. Admittedly, going down could be easier, and as we descend into thicker air, our bodies would start to normalize, but I couldn't dump all my energy on the way up. I had to keep my adrenaline in check. History tells us that most of the accidents and incidents happen on the descent, so I couldn't let my guard down. I'm only halfway through the marathon. My lungs no longer feel like my own. Like they've been replaced by somebody else's lungs that haven't lived a happy life. Each breath gets wispier, grainier, and coarser. Like eating nuts with their shells on. My brain, in a moment of wanderlust, travels elsewhere. I'm back in the fields of home. Colorado. And I'm wrestling wizard, my old guide dog. He's playful and energetic. He tackles me and uses his strength to climb on top of me. He licks me. My nose, my neck. Sloppy dog kisses. Yet, they're cold and bitter. 
like freezy winds passing by a mountainside. Get off, wizard, I say affectionately. I love this dog. I owe him so much. I nestle my head into his thick fur and give his belly a rub. Breathe, Eric. Your brain needs that oxygen. I realize that my body is starting to prioritize its limited resources and is sending O to my lungs and legs. I'm hallucinating. I know that. I take three long, deep breaths. I steady myself and bring myself back down to earth. This time, Wizard licks me twice, right across the left ear, down to my right shoulder. A doglick, full of love and saliva, warm and tender. He pushes me down. He really is a strong dog when he wants to be. I feel too tired to fight back, but I step forward against him. The wrong move, I realize, is he assumes I'm playing. This time, he digs his rear legs in and climbs up on top of me. Stop it, wizard, I shout. What, dude? Kev responds somewhere in front of me. Oh, nothing, man. Just talking to myself. For a moment, the sadness of losing wizard floods all over me again. He's been gone a long time now, but realizing he's not here on the mountain with me is like well, it's like losing him all over again. His warmth, his vibrancy and support. I miss you, wizard. We can see the balcony, folks. Someone, maybe, maybe PV shouts up ahead. Let's take a quick rest there. Everyone okay? Wow. I don't know what to say. Well, when you think of climbing a mountain, you think of the fitness that's needed, and the the immense gravity of the physical task. Not that your mind will be tested, the mental strength that's needed. Eric is so close to the summit. It's a lifelong ambition for so many, and it's right there at his fingertips. I can't imagine what that feels like, but I suppose... I could sort of liken it to the times that I've been climbing. Admittedly, it's indoors, only like 30 feet high, but I remember trying to get this, this one route so many times. It was the yellow route on one of the bouldering walls. It was rated as a, a 4B or C, so really easy. Almost as easy as they get. I've been going about three months at this point, and had gained some confidence, and lost some weight too. <laughs> the quick rest does me some good. Sitting down for a short while allows me to get my breath back and my mind clears. As we set off for the final time, I start to get a little emotional. All the years of training were about to lead to this. The final stage of climbing Mount Everest would be the southeast ridge, leading to the Hillary Step, and then to the summit. 
I'm reminded of the first time I ever climbed. It was in the local gym, starting out on the small walls with not much strength or technique. I start out on this yellow route, grabbing the first large jug in front of me with my left hand. I have to reach over to the right to grab the next one. It's a slightly smaller, rounder jug. I'm stood on the ridge, feeling the wind from both sides, realizing I'm on the knife edge. I reach forward, down with my left hand to check in front of me and take a step. To the right a little. Kev shouts in front of me with some urgency in his voice. Shift your body weight to the right a little now, Pete says. He's my bud from work. He got me into climbing in the first place. I do what he says, but I can feel my sweaty hand start to slip. I do a quick readjustment, almost sliding off the jug that I'm holding. I shift over to the right, trying to grab a pocket. I know I'm close now. The Hillary step is just to the right of us, marking the last bit of technical ascent before the summit. You can't stop, Mike. You're so close, Pete shouts, coaching me on. Although it's only a beginner's route, every time I've tried it, I've got stuck about two-thirds of the way up. There's this pinch that's, that's at a sharp left to the previous hold. Perhaps I'm making it sound harder than it really is, because it's one of the easiest routes in the gym... I've reached, and I've landed it. I'm holding on, composing myself. Don't fall! Just before the Hillary step is the sharpest of all knife-edge ridges, with an 11,000-foot drop on one side and an 8,000-foot drop on the other. Don't let go, Eric. I will not let go. I'm going to conquer this yellow route today if it kills me. I reach from the pinch to the next hold, which is another large pocket and it's easy to grip. I rest there for a moment before the final three holds. We scale the Hillary step in a relatively quick time. Some of the large rocks sticking out are problematic, but we work our way around them. The difficulty is circumstantial, not technical. At the top of the step, we gather our breath before the final dash to the finish line. I am just one hold away from completing the yellow route, something that I've been trying to do two or three times a week for the last three months. I make a final reach, and I grab hold of the final jug at the top of the wall. I take a huge breath and feel an explosion of emotions. I am smiling across the whole horizon as I climb down, skipping the last few holds and I jump to the crash mat below. I feel electric, like a convertible car on a summer's day, like the, the last stroke of a paintbrush on a newly painted wall, like a freshly sharpened pencil, like a perfectly set jelly. In my own small way, I have just conquered my own Everest, proving to myself that a little mental toughness, some practice and some training can reap almighty rewards.
an endorphin rush like no other. Pete is... Well, he's much more accomplished than me. He flies up a much harder 6A route, like he's a... Like he's a spider or something. It sort of... It sort of makes my own achievements seem a little bit insignificant. But in that moment... I don't care. Because I have just conquered the world. Someone up ahead shouts, look! It's the prayer flags! We are about to be on top of the world! I think of my beautiful wife, and my beautiful daughter, and my family, and my friends, and I know they will hear me as I whisper, I did it. I take those final few steps, and feel somebody hug me so tight, there is laughter and tears. Somebody through thick crying says, we made it, Eric. We made it. I fall to my knees, and I am overcome with emotion. We have stood on top of the world. Dear Eric, I have recorded this final letter in the hope that one day you might just listen to this podcast. You may just hear these words. You know, for whatever miraculous reason you are listening to this, then thank you. Having read your book and watched your film, followed you on social media, and also having a close friend who is visually impaired, I know that bits of this podcast might really frustrate you and him. As I, a non-disabled person, have made myself feel guilty for not achieving great things when you have. Disabled inspiration porn, some might call it. But your achievements are inspiring. Not because you lost both your eyes to glaucoma. Not because you lost your mum young, but because... Because you climbed up Mount Everest. You stood in front of something that seemed impossible, and rather than being overwhelmed by it, you took that first step. When you climbed Mount Rainier, as your practice run for McKinley, an expert laughed and told you that you didn't have a chance. As for McKinley, well, that's ten times as difficult. After you summited both... Suddenly they understood how you'd climbed McKinley, because it's snowy and you don't really need to see where you're going. But they laughed again and said, Aconcagua, far too inconsistent and rocky for a blind person. After you summited again, they understood. Before Everest again, they doubted you. They tried to talk you out of it, or were quoted as saying it would be the hardest ascent to Everest ever. But once again, you made them understand. They understood that there is a flame inside of you that will not be exhausted by doubt, concern or failure. It burns bright and hot and is a beacon of hope for others and me. 
disregarding all of our differences. Our abilities, disabilities, beliefs, doubts, strengths, weaknesses. I thank you as a human being. From me, a fellow human being. I thank you for making me realise in my own life that far too many people tell me I can do this or I can do that. You can do anything that you set your mind to, Mike, anything. They tell me that because I tell them that I can't. I can't do this or I can't do that. Well, from this day forward, I light my candle. When somebody tells me I can, I say, I know. When someone says I can't, I will tell them, I can. Just watch me. Thank you, Eric. From Mike. Mike on the mic. Finding the pattern. A brick wall ensemble production. Written by Luke Pearson. Performed by Ben Wilson and Tash Jarvis. Thanks for listening.